On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about the fiscal update that we received. Is it good news? As we move into December, is it great Christmas gladness and joy and all that stuff? Well, we'll find that out. Uh, We're also talking about a digital passport. It's something that a, a group representing airlines is proposing, a digital passport before you can fly. Good idea or a little Orwellian? And then Don Robertson joins us, speaking of, no, nothing Orwellian about Don, but talking about a lot of other stuff, including Mike Tyson and women playing men's sports and all kinds of other stuff. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. The um, fiscal update, as promised from the federal government, was delivered today. And what did we learn? As I said off the top, did we receive great glad tidings of comfort and joy? Well, I'm not entirely sure. I guess that depends on your definition of glad tidings of comfort and joy. Uh, We learned that we're going to have a $381 billion deficit. I don't even need to repeat that. That is a staggering sum of money. Keep in mind, our deficit last year was $26.6 billion. $26.6 $26.6 billion, and people were f- losing their minds about a $26.6 billion deficit. This year, $381 billion, 14 times bigger. I want to bring in Ian Lee, who is with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Ian, thank you for doing this today. Very much appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, we heard, as I just said, some, uh, I don't even know if the word big qualifies, monumental numbers being thrown Very around today. Genuine. That's a good one. Uh, we can keep going. We could do this all day just with, right. with the thesaurus. Um, going into this fiscal update, one of the things that we heard a lot of from a lot of different experts was the phrase financial anchor or fiscal anchor. We needed right. something that we were going to tie to so this doesn't get completely out of control. What did we hear about that? Uh, they, like quite a few things in this, um, essentially a mini budget tonight, was they kicked it down the road. Um, they did not come up with a fiscal anchor. I watched the uh, watched Christia Freeland, by the way, uh, live uh, on the, uh, and then I downloaded her uh, presentation afterwards from uh, Finance Canada website. And she said, "Now's not the time." When I'm, you know, getting angry at my TV screen when she's saying that a fiscal anchor is precisely when you're in trouble. That's when you need it. You don't need a fiscal anchor when the economy is just doing happy, you know, doing wonderfully things. You know, it's it's going, it's booming away, and unemployment rates very low, and you know the government revenues are flowing in, and everybody knows how the economy is doing, and what you know what the debt is. You don't need an anchor then. I mean, it's nice to have one. You should have one, but it's not really essential because everybody knows where the, what the situation is. It's not dynamic and changing. This is the time you need an anchor. It's when things are, pardon my language, we're going to hell in a handcart. That's when you need the anchor to anchor all the, 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 you know, the, the astonishing uh, situation and the astonishing demands that are, because people, all kinds of people beyond the people that need help are coming out of the woodwork to use the, uh, the crisis as, a, as an excuse to try to get their favorite spending put through. And so I was very disappointed that she did not come up with a fiscal anchor, and, and, and it, she wasn't even that concrete about how big it is. She kept saying, well, this is what we think the deficit is, but, but she said it could change. You know, it could get worse. It could get better. Well, let me throw one other line that she said in there on the topic that you're just talking about. Christia Freeland says, the risks associated with not providing enough economic support right now outweigh 
the risks in spending too much. So in other words, it's more dangerous not to spend than to spend. That That is contrary, I think, to most people's understanding of like doing a household budget or something else. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, in a time of crisis, you want to to use an old-fashioned word, husband your resources. It means you want to economize. You don't go out to a fancy restaurant, maybe, if you think you're about to be laid off tomorrow morning. You save your resources, and then you target them very carefully on the things you really need to spend your money on. And and she seemed to be saying, look, we're just going to throw an awful lot of spaghetti sauce at the wall, and we're just going to keep throwing it at the wall and hoping it sticks, because now is not the time to be asking questions about what's the most prudent way or effective way to spend money. My, uh, It's just a different philosophy. Uh, well, she, exactly she also... She, she's also said today, uh, in addition to this, over the next couple of years, three years, there's going to be an additional $100 billion to kickstart the economy. And I'm assuming, because I don't think it was clear, although you could correct me, this is on top of the day-to-day stuff, like yes, the $20 yes. billion that we're already talking about. So that means in another five years, we could be in for another half trillion dollars on top of the trillion point two or whatever we already have in debt. This is what worried me tonight as I was watching it. You know, it was it was almost surreal because on the one hand, they were saying, and she was saying this, look, everybody, it's going to drop dramatically. The deficit is going to drop dramatically next year and the year after and the year after. I'm saying, okay, well, that that's good news. And then at a later part in her presentation, she's outlining all these massive spending programs that they want to undertake in the going ahead in the near future. And I thought, wait a minute. You're saying that the deficit is going down, 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 but you're announcing large numbers of really expensive spending initiatives that are going to make the deficit go up, up, up. And, you know, that, that's what had me so nervous, you know, because she was saying two things. Her narrative was going in two completely different directions. Light is at the end of the tunnel. The economy is turning around. Things are going well. The deficit is going to be dropping down very dramatically in the next 12 to 24 months. And then she turned around and said, oh, by the way, things are really bad, really, really bad, like terribly bad, and we've got to spend a lot more money. And I'm sitting there, I've got whiplash. I mean, my head has whiplash, you know, I mean, in the sense because it's sort of getting whacked one way, and then she's hitting me the other way, you know, saying, no, it's getting much, much worse. No, it's getting much, much better. Well, which is it? Like, which direction is it? You know, where is the economy going? You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Ian, one other thing that, that really came to mind as I was picking up on this is the theme that, and this has been going on for some time now, we've been hearing this for a long time, that we can do this borrowing in the country because of historically low interest rates, which uh, is true, but we're not paying back this trillion plus or soon to be trillion and a half plus debt in a few years. It's going to take generations. And all I can keep thinking is, are we supposed to expect that interest rates are going to stay where they are forever then? Yes. <laughs> You've raised a very important point. You know, their argument for the interest rates are going to remain, they're implying, suggesting that the rates are going to remain low for basically forever or at least indefinitely into the far-off future. You know, this is a variation of, uh, my grandmother used to give me a hard time about this, you know, save when you spend. Come into the new sale and save when you spend. Right. Oh, 
when you spend money, you are spending money. You are not, okay? You're right. going deeper into debt if you're borrowing, okay? Let's quit spinning people. Let me address your question. The last 15 years, and I've actually looked at some really interesting studies, and I don't mean from politicians, from the Bank of England. They did a working paper by one of their senior economists, and he computed interest rates back to 1300 And the Federal Reserve did a similar one. And these rates of the last 15 or so years have never in human history been this low. So that should tell everybody this is really unusual. And it's probably not going to last. It's so unusual. If the long-term average is 3 or 5 or 7%, what on earth would make anyone think that being at one quarter of 1% or one half of 1% is going to remain forever or indefinitely into the future for 20 or 30 or 50 years? And in fact, there's a new book out by a very famous professor in England who used to advise the governor of the Bank of England. And he said the last 15 years was an anomaly, a fluke, because the boomers were in their peak earning years. They piled up huge amounts of savings, and around the world they created a savings glut, way more money to lend than there was borrowers. And that drove down the rates, supply and demand. And now he says the boomers are all going into retirement, and they're going to be spending their savings because it's very expensive to go into a nursing home, into a senior's home, long-term care home and that sort of thing. And so he argues the savings glut is going to become a savings shortage at the very time when governments around the world are going massively into debt and need to borrow a lot more money. And so the low interest rates are going to reverse, he's arguing. And we're going to move into a high, he's not predicting 20% or anything like that, but he's saying rates are going to move up sharply in the next, in the near future, because the savings glut will disappear and there'll be a savings shortage in aggregate and so that will bid up the price of money which is called the interest rate so this myth this urban legend that rates are going to be low forever and ever at levels that they have never been in human history except for the last 15 years is just specious it's just nonsense yeah and if we were going to and my kind of my point although not spoken as well as yours um is that if this was a debt that we could clear out in the next four or five years, it would be fine in my mind, because then yeah. you say we can take advantage of these low interest yeah. rates and no, no harm, but we're not getting rid of a trillion and a half dollars anytime soon. So this is going to be around long, long, long from now. That's, that's my argument. In case any of your listeners are sitting there thinking, well, he's just saying we should have just let everybody eat cake and, and, and left them alone. I am not making that argument at all. We absolutely had to help all the people that lost you know, their jobs and lost their businesses and so forth. No question about it. Absolutely job number one had to do it. That's not the argument. The argument is we're building up permanent structural deficits that are going to remain in place long after COVID has gone. Mm. And that's the problem. It's not the helping out people today. That's good. That's essential. That is required. It's that he, they're using the whole COVID crisis, because they've even said so. Crisis is a terrible thing to waste and all that stuff. And they want, they're talking about spending massive amounts to green the economy and to do social, uh, uh, massive social ch- reengineering you know, like a universal uh, uh, pharmacare plan to give high-income people free drugs, because that's what universal pharmacare is. We already have pharmacare for low-income people. 42% of all the drugs in Canada are paid for through health care, through OHIP and so forth, and that's on the record from StatScan. That's hard 
data out there. So Universal Pharmacare is giving uh, free drugs to high-income people, uh, guaranteed annual income, universal daycare to give high-income lawyers and accountants and public servants free daycare. These kinds of programs are going to bake in a much higher deficit and on an annual basis. That's my fear. It's not helping out people that really need help today. Not at all. It's that they're using this as the cloak to then to, to mask a complete re-engineering that's going to lead to much higher deficits. And there eventually it's going to precipitate, I believe, a financial crisis similar to what uh, Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin experienced and solved in 1995. Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business. Always appreciate your time. Thank you for doing this. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, one other thing, just as we go to break here, um, and forgive my cynicism on this one, but one of the things Christia Freeland said today was the pandemic has left many middle-class families struggling. I, anytime the government talks about the middle class, I always remember that the gov- this same government was asked many years ago to define the middle class, and they couldn't do it. And then I hear the middle class is, well, how do they know? If we don't even know what the middle class is, how do we know the middle class is struggling? People are struggling. There's no question. The middle class has become such a throwaway word these days. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. You probably haven't uh, traveled anywhere recently unless you're, well, I was going to say unusual or, or American. They had something like a million people in airports for Thanksgiving down there. Anyway, we're living in a different world up here. But somewhere in the future, you're probably going to want to get on a plane and fly somewhere. Most people do go down as a snowbird or see part of the world or go on a cruise or go across Canada or whatever. COVID's not going to last forever. But when that happens, there are some rumblings coming that some airlines might have a little surprise for you. Some airlines are talking about requiring in the future, a digital passport in order to get on board, a digital record showing proof of vaccine against COVID. But it would also allow labs and the airlines and government and everyone else to be able to check and cross-reference and everything else to make sure that you were you were good, you were clean. Not surprisingly, many are expressing concerns about this, that this yeah, you know what, COVID is the launching point, the jumping off point, but this will ultimately not really just be about COVID, or at least it would give a lot of different people a lot of different opportunity to have a lot of information about you. But we're starting with airlines. So I wanted to bring in Gabor Lukash, who is the founder of Air Passenger Rights. We love it when Gabor can join us. Thank you for doing this, sir. Good evening, Scott. Thank you for having me again today. Well, okay, so I read this thing today, uh, Gabor, the International Air Transport Association, I guess that's an overseeing body for a lot of different parts of the air industry, announced this week it is in the final... body, actually. IATA is actually simply a trade group. They represent the airline's interests. They don't have power over the airlines. They don't regulate, they don't balance. They certainly do not act in the public interest. They are simply something like a, you know, like an association. We can have air passenger rights for consumers, airlines to Vallada. Okay. So they, they've announced this week, they are in the final phase of development for what they hope will be a universally accepted document that in turn, they say will boost confidence among travelers, which is this digital passport that would show that you've had all your shots and you're all clean and blah, blah, blah. Um, 
I'm not sure, Gabor, that putting a digital passport in the hands of the airlines and other people is making me feel all that confident. What about you? I have serious concerns about that. To be clear, I very much support that people who fly must be vaccinated. Yes. I support the requirement that before people board an aircraft, they present proof that they are vaccinated. Yes. All that is sound policy, and I understand it may make some people feel uncomfortable, but we have to also remember that no one has the right to get on a plane and infect others. That is not a legal right that anybody would have. Agreed 100%. At the same time, at the same time, uh, entrusting airlines or any other private entity, for that matter, with storing, holding that information and managing it is something that raises serious concerns in my mind. Well, yeah, I mean, look, not to be too uh, ridiculous, but airlines can't keep track of my bags. They lose my bags. They run late. Uh, they have other administrative issues. I, I'm a little concerned when it's airlines who I'm now going to be entrusting all my personal medical details to. It is indeed personal information. I would hope it would not be all the medical information, but only some. But still, I would say one piece of information is too many. Certainly, checking that you have the vaccination when you board is something reasonable. Even cross-checking it against some kind of central governmental database is reasonable but that information should not be stored. If, for example, the fact that when exactly the exact day that you were vaccinated within a given range is not their business, what type of vaccine you were vaccinated with is not their business, where did you get the vaccine is not their business. What they need to know is only that you meet certain standards of vaccination. That's all yes. that I need to know. The rest is Gab their business. Gabor, a couple of years ago, my wife and I went to Africa and, uh, for a few weeks. And when we went there, we had to have inoculations, injections against yellow fever. And I think dengue fever and a few other really nasty illnesses that you can get when you're over there. And when, and we got those and I carried with me a paper document from the doctor signed and stamped and all the rest showing that I had received these injections and that got me through the border. Why can that not be good enough for COVID? That's a good question. One reason why it might not be enough is because some people may try to uh, commit fraud. There have been some uh, rumors that X spy got on this flight uh, with some uh, fake documents. So because of the implications of COVID-19, because we're talking about something very, very highly contagious, having more than just a piece of paper having some way of verifying that the paper that you're holding is genuine, that is not an unreasonable expectation. However, beyond verification, airlines should not be assuming the role that belongs strictly to the state. Yeah, we have to remember that with respect to the state, there are more forms of accountability if there is a breach, if they overstep their boundaries. There are, for example, in Canada, we have charter rights against the state if they in some way invade our privacy. Such rights don't exist in that form against airlines. We do have BIPEDA. We, we may have now some additional privacy legislation that is in the works now. But when it comes to storing our information, certainly as much as I don't like anybody for that matter to store our personal information, um, if we have the truth in a private entity like, a, like IATA, 
which represents a particular interest group or the government. I would still prefer the government. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Just before the break, you pointed out, and I think your point was well made. Um, there could be fraud. People could try to make up fake documents to show that they've got COVID vaccines when in fact they haven't got vaccines. I will shoot back a little bit though with one point and say, but we have had passports for, I don't know how long passports been around, 400 years, give or take. And they are paper documents and people have tried to forge them at times. But on balance, we say that is sufficient. You know, people could be terrorists and trying to forge a, a passport, but we're okay with passports. So again, I say, why, why do we need to put all this information? Why do the airlines need all this information in a way that could be compromised? I don't think the airline needs anything more than a temporary, momentary access of, of verification to it. Uh, what the counter argument that could be made, and I would like a little bit to be the devil's advocate on this. Sure. That, uh, the, the potential of it, even if a terrorist infiltrating a country with a fake passport could be far less devastating than someone who's infected with a COVID getting into a country which is already back to normal because they assume that we are through with the COVID-19 and just being back in the, the disease starting to spread again. That's the counter-argument that could be made. So having, uh, when we come to, when we talk about the deadly disease, uh, where which is quite infectious, an argument could be made that perhaps you want to be more secure than, because let's face it, most people who travel with a fake passport will not necessarily uh, be uh, Paris. There can be just people who may be escaping from a debt or escaping sure. from a yep. regime that had some trouble, uh, escaping a custody battle. I mean, for, for you know, personally, when I was uh, seven years old, I was traveling with a fake passport. I was this guy as a girl. So <laughs> I, I don't think that I, I, I don't think that that's something such big of a deal per se, as long as it's not being used by genuinely criminal elements. And I think governments will realize that what you want to keep out from a country is first and foremost terrorists, criminal elements, and not just somebody who perhaps, you know, somebody tried to cut off their finger if they don't pay a debt or something of that sort. So uh, the difference is that with, with uh, disease, and you can have way more implications and when, for an entire country, entire continent, and that's how we ended up with COVID-19 to begin with in North America. Some people with a, were clearly unaware of what they were doing brought it in. Yeah. All right, let me throw one more back at you then, is that we don't have this same um, expectation or we're not demanding this same thing for smallpox or polio. You may be unvaccinated for some other illness, but because the vast majority of the population has been, we say, well, your chances then of getting this are very small. Well, theoretically, by next fall, the vast majority of the population should be, we hear, vaccinated for COVID. So even if you're not vaccinated, the chance of giving it to someone is very, very small. Should we be doing the same thing then for smallpox and polio and rubella and all these other things that you may or may not have a vaccine for? Well, uh, smallpox, I'm not sure how widespread it is currently in the world. Not, ver not very at all. No, no, not very at all. Not fair. No, smallpox is not a good example for it. Let's be fair. Uh, polio uh, is is better and a better example for sure. 
there is an issue of herd immunity there for sure, and a very large number of people are are uh, vaccinated. I don't have data in front of me about how, in, in, in terms of the R value, the infection infection ratio, I would speculate, and this is without the data in front of me, that, that COVID-19 is way more infectious, way more contagious than polio, but it is not, this is just based on my speculation and not based on actual um, data in, in front of me. Uh, I, I would also argue that, uh, well, one could argue that the impact of uh, COVID-19 at a current stage where we are just having the first generation of the vaccine could be way more severe. I mean, with polio, we have to go through many generations of vaccines, many developments, same thing with many other diseases. When we, we are talking about a vaccine that we are just hoping that is going to maybe last for six months, we don't know even how long the vaccine will provide immunity. We don't know how much mutation um, can still happen while the vaccine is still good. I would I would support the idea that we beat others safe than sorry. Having I would say that in general, having some minimum level of vaccination across society necessary for people to to be in a society is not necessarily a bad idea. Many universities, mostly in the United States, but possibly even in Canada, may require students enrolling and say going to live in a dormitory to provide proof that they are vaccinated. So this is not something entirely outlandish. And we have to understand that uh, while vaccination may also be a personal choice, we cannot make choices for other people whom we may inadvertently be infecting. So I can decide I don't want the vaccine for disease A and B and C because that's against my belief. It's because I, I think I'm not going to get it. But if by so doing, I may be infecting other people, that's no longer my liberty at that point. More precisely, in that situation, I have to be isolated from the rest of society, which doesn't want to be infected, which doesn't share my views on those vaccines. It is a fascinating topic. Uh, Gabor, uh, Gabor Lukash from uh, Air Passenger Rights, thank you so much for your time. Always love having you on the show. Thanks for doing this. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, you know what? My, 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 call me paranoid, whatever, but I agree with Gabor on a lot of what he said about that we want to protect people when they're on planes, but the idea of making a digital passport, I'm sorry, I get concerned that you, you suddenly put, you put this on some sort of digital passport and then someone says, Hey, you know what? We should also have this on and this on. And suddenly now we have all of our information in some system that we have no control over. And if you don't see the concern or the fear of having some unknown anonymous bureaucrats and government have access to every little piece of your information, I think you're being naive. And so it's not so much about the airlines simply having this. It's the is this the first step to something bigger and more troubling? And I don't want to open that door to the first step. I'm sorry. Maybe that's just me, but I don't want to do it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Last day of November in a year that I think most people would be very happy to blow through. We've only got one month left. Tomorrow we were into December. It's the most wonderful time of the year. All that stuff. The Christmas lights, the decorations are up. Our, our street got on it early, but I got to tell you, when I do poke my head out now, when I do poke my head out, 
we seem to have even more going up all the time. I think people are really into the whole into the whole Christmas thing this year more than ever, just because they need a break. I know when I bring Don Robertson in in a second, I saw a picture of the homestead Robertson Acres. My goodness, it is um, it is lovely. Honestly, no, no joking. It is, uh, well, let me bring him in right now. Let me bring in Don Robertson, owner and operator of the Dundas Real McCoys, when and if they ever play. Um, Com Choice Realty, he's the guy behind that. Dundas is Citizen of the Year uh, several years ago, I think 2014. And for a long time, the guy whose smiling face you saw as you drove out of town until they took down the sign, um, not because of any restraining order. Don Robertson, sir, how are you? <laughs> how do you know that? Well, I'm good, not, not that I've heard. Yes, let me qualify that. Not that I've heard. Yeah. But I will say, I saw the photo. Now, did you decorate the house or did Suze do it? Because it is lovely, the outside. I, I did it. I've done it before with floodlights. You know, it's to, to, to picture it, it's kind of like an old farmhouse brick ranch. And I used to put them on the ground, the floodlights. And this year, I got a little creative and cut some T-bars in half and put them and wired them up and put the floodlights on the house because quite frankly, I think it looks better and I'm not interested in getting on a ladder with Christmas lights anymore. So, and she went out last night and took a picture of it and we put the bows up on the pillars out front and she thought it looked cool and it, it looks pretty good actually. It, you know what? It's uh, as just saying, like I, I think an awful lot of people have decided this year to say, you know, I've been stuck inside and this sucks and all the rest. And let's, let's do it this year, even if we haven't done it before very much, or let's up the ante a little bit here. And yeah, it looks great. It looks fantastic. I was, I was most impressed, although I figured that Sue's must've had some hand in that, but uh, well done. Oh yeah. Instruction. Well, out back too, by the shop, we've got a big pine bush and it was determined that that needed to be illuminated as well. So uh, you can probably see the place from uh, outer space station. <laughs> I can see it, like the Griswolds. <laughs> well, whatever works. At least Santa knows where to land. Um, we have as I say, the, I, we have one of the very we have one of the very few illuminated bushes in Ancaster, so that helps anybody. <laughs> well, as I said online, I, I it does look like a the the branch office of Graceland North. So, <laughs> yeah, very you. lovely. Uh, Don Robertson, I don't know if you had an opportunity either live. You probably didn't drop the fifty bucks. I would hope you didn't. You're you're a uh, you're a, a wise man with your money. So I'm guessing you didn't put fifty dollars down to watch the Mike Tyson fight on the weekend. But and the beauty of social media now is that if you wait about ten hours or less, someone posts the entire thing on there. So I got to watch the entire Mike Tyson fight against Roy Jones Jr., two 50-year-old guys making a comeback. Uh, I watched it by Sunday morning, and I got to tell you, Mike Tyson is older than me, and apparently he was stoned out of his mind. He said he smoked pot before he came into the ring. Regardless, Don, (laughs) he looked great. He looked great. And I, watching this, am absolutely convinced that there are some 21, 22, 25-year-old guys who are heavyweight professional boxers right now that Mike Tyson could handle. Question is, would you want to see that? Would you want the risk of putting a 54-year-old guy, even one who looks like he could probably handle himself still, would you want to see him get into the ring with a real fighter and, and have a real fight at this point? 
Well, based, I, I did see some of the interviews. I didn't take the time to look at it online, but uh, by all accounts, he did. He looks pretty sharp. Now, my question, perhaps back to you, in, in the way of answering the question is, how much damage could, could they actually do to Mike Tyson? Well, look, I, I, the guys who are heavyweights today, I mean, Mike Tyson is probably 5'11", and I, I think he came in at 220 pounds. And by the end of his time, and remember, his last fight was 15 years ago, he was fi- there were guys who were like 6'8", 6'9", 260 as the heavyweights. So uh, he is, he's much closer to a middleweight really than he is to a heavyweight. He could probably drop down a few pounds and fight as a middleweight. But the question to, to answer your question, how much damage you fight a guy who's six, five, six, six, two fifty, and they catch you with a clean shot. I don't care who you are. They can damage you. Yeah, I know. I might, it was kind of tongue, tongue in cheek because I've listened to him talk, but the, the truth is they'd have to find a heavyweight that's not the size of the Sasquatch to fight them, right? Yeah, yeah um, that's true. And you know what? And, and, and nobody really cares about the heavyweight division now. Mike Tyson was never really a heavyweight anyway at 5'11". You know, the heavyweight division was to be – he was a heavyweight because he was powerful and could fight with those guys. Like Muhammad Ali wasn't a monster either. He was, a, you know, a good-sized guy, but – I mean, he wasn't a monster. I mean, the heavyweight division started getting smaller and smaller as they needed because they, the, the, the heavy, and I'm not uh, a boxing aficionado. Well, that was poorly said. Anyway, I, I'm not an expert on boxing, but the, 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 the truth is it needed some spark. And they, let, they started letting guys that were entertaining fight in the heavyweight division. So, I mean, I don't remember seeing a whole lot of big guys there. You're right. Some of them now are 6'4". They're monsters. But in the old days, I mean, Tyson, you know, you, you don't fight at 5'11 in the heavyweight division, if you think about it. And he did, and he was he was pretty good at it. So, you know, I mean, he can't fight a great big guy, but he could probably fight a contender. Well, Tyson Fury is the guy who's one of the heavyweight champions now because uh, you've you know you've got so many different champions, and he's six nine, um, and I'm trying to find his weight here. I mean, he's a giant guy, like six foot nine to begin with. Um, you know, I'm not sure that at 54, even though you know, it'll be an interesting story. I'm not sure I want to see Mike Tyson get in the ring with that guy. Because I don't think that's a fair fight, quite honestly, and I, you know, and I don't think anyone else would either. But I, I you know, having watched some of the highlights and watching through this fight, then um, <coughs> Mike Tyson could could be competitive with some of these guys. The question is, is the risk worth it to put a fifty four year old? I mean, I don't want to make fifty four sound antiquated, but in boxing, it really is. I mean, in boxing, it really is. Um. But boy, it would be, I, I, I would argue, Don, that at this point, at this point right now, if Mike Tyson was to fight a real fight against a real heavyweight, even a top 20 guy, it would be the number one top grossing fight in boxing of the year, any year right now. There would be nobody that would bring in more box office if you could have box office than Mike Tyson right now. I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I, 
that that's what I my earlier comments is is that the heavyweight division and a lot of boxing is in trouble because they don't have a marquee guy. So if they bring a marquee guy back, it'll be a huge payday for Tyson, and and Tyson would likely make as much or more than the guy he fought. But oh, absolutely, right. he would absolutely. But they, but they've got to find a champion in one of those uh, alphabet soup divisions that is not six foot nine. I mean, he can fight a guy. At, Six three, maybe six, but six nine. I mean, he wouldn't reach him. So they can find the right opponent, and if they can bring Don King back, they'll all make a hundred million dollars. There was a. Um, I'm trying to find. Uh, I can't remember the name now. Years ago, I'm talking fifteen, sixteen, seventeen years ago. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, but Anna Kornikova. The tennis player came to play an exhibition tennis match in Hamilton. And uh, I remember writing about it. And at the time, the biggest challenge they had, because by the point, by the time she came, she was still a big star. She had a big name because of her looks and everything else, but she was ranked something like 1500th in the world. I mean, she was, I I might've been able to beat her some days and I'm not a good tennis player. But their biggest challenge was finding somebody with some reasonable facsimile of a name that Anna Kornikova could probably beat most days. And you couldn't just put her on a court with the tree planter, uh, which might have been your best option. And so they finally found someone, and I can't remember the name of the person, but that's what you would have to find with Tyson. You have to find someone almost who is legitimate enough as a realistic heavyweight boxer who's active now, but, but who is willing to theoretically dump his career. Cause if you're a 25 year old guy and you lose to Mike Tyson at 54, any aspirations you might have to move up and be a heavyweight champion are gone. Gone. Well, but here, yeah. But so if like, I don't, I don't know if there are still multiple divisions uh, of heavyweight champions, Every once in a while, back when Tyson was around, they would all amalgamate and you would be the champion of all the different associations and federations. Here's what I'll tell you, though. If they've got a guy that Tyson can fight, and it might be a fair fight, and it's one of those, one of those, uh, you know, the world, you know, athletic association, heavyweight champion of the world, and Tyson has a shot at him. That guy will never make more money in his entire life. If he gets beat at the age of 25 by Mike Tyson at 54, he can retire. That'll be the biggest payday he's ever going to have. He'll make more stepping in the ring with Mike Tyson than he will the rest of his entire career. So why wouldn't you do it? Possibly. And, and you know, but what's the upside? What's the upside? Like I, I, this, this same question goes back to uh, some time ago, they had a debate about well, what about the idea of a man fighting a woman in mixed martial arts? Could you have a, a cross gender match? And there was all kinds of talk about, could we do this? And you know, whether this, I don't know if this is sexist or not. And the discussion at the time, there were questions about whether this kind of question is sexist or not, but if the guy beats the woman, is there any upside? Does he, does he prove anything? If he punches the woman in the face, he looks like the bad guy. If he loses, his career is done. So where's the upside to that guy to get in the cage and fight a woman? And I kind of feel the same way about this. Yeah, it's Mike Tyson. It's not exactly the same as a nobody, but if you get in the ring and you beat up Mike Tyson and you're 25, what have you, 
I mean, Mike Tyson got in the ring with Larry Holmes. Remember when he fought Larry Holmes? Larry Holmes was at the very end of his career and wanted to fight Tyson. And Tyson beat the snot out of Larry Holmes, who had been a great champion. But what, what did that prove? And now Tyson was on his way up so he could continue. But if you're Bob Schmarcola, heavyweight wannabe, and you punch up Mike Tyson, what have you, what have you proved? I guess you can say I beat Mike Tyson, but so did Kevin McBride, who we've never heard from since his last fight. Well, yeah, I, I mean, there is, I mean, there's always more downside, but again, I, when you originally said, how do, what's in it for him and how do you get him to do it? It's money. He would become as wealthy as he's ever going to be. Now, if he beats Tyson, then you move on and at least then somebody's going to know your name because until he, until they pick a fight, until that guy gets, you know, uh, paired up with Tyson, nobody knows who he is. I mean, who? Who are, who are, who's heavyweight champion of the world right now? Well, Tyson Fury, you got a Tyson who's the champion right now. Well, you know what pops to mind? We got to take a break. What pops to mind here? And I hadn't even considered this until you were just talking. Um, this is the plot to the movie Rocky, the original Rocky where, where Rocky yeah. or not Rocky Bell, where uh, Apollo Creed is looking for a nobody to fight the champ on the 4th of July. And they pick Rocky Balboa out of the hat because his name sounds cool. That's kind of, it's not exactly, but that would be, you're right. That in the movies that made Rocky into a household name. Would it work in real life to take a nobody or somebody with no recognition to fight Mike Tyson? Maybe, maybe, maybe. I, I, I don't know that there, well, that's not true. I'm sure there is a state somewhere that would grant Mike Tyson a boxing license after seeing him perform on the weekend. I'm sure there is some place now that he has proved that he is capable of going into the ring and not looking horrible. I'm sure somebody would give him a license. The challenge you would have, as I said right off the top, Don, is that he said afterwards that he had been smoking pot before he even went into the ring. I, I'm, I'm fearful for Roy Jones Jr., quite honestly, if Tyson hadn't been chill on pot, if he'd gone in there, because he looked like he could already do damage but Mike Tyson would have to be probably having drug tests and pot tests and all kinds. I mean, whether, whether you agree or disagree, and, and I don't know if he's even wanting to do that at this point, but boy, it would be interesting. They, uh, they'd have to hold it in the state where marijuana smoking is legal. Well, I'll have it in Ontario. I mean, you know, we, <laughs> we, we could do it. I suppose Mike Tyson fighting here. I'd, uh, as I say, it is, it is maybe a sad state on the world of boxing, but if Mike Tyson at 54 came back and said, I'm having a real fight, there is not another fighter in the world. I don't care who you are. And I know there are some great fighters out there. There is nobody in the world that would draw as much interest and as much money and to sell as many tickets and pay-per-views as that period. End of story by a mile. I know you got to yeah. go. Any idea how many people bought it? No, I didn't see if there was a number out there, but... Uh, I'll say this, Don, on Saturday night, I was doing some work. I was in the basement around the time the fight was on and there was no way in a million years I was spending 50 bucks to watch that partially because I'm smarter than that. And partially because I had seen Roy <laughs> Jones Jr. at the weigh-in and Roy Jones Jr. who at, at, in his prime was one of the fittest, ripped, fastest, best reflexes fighters. I mean, he, he had my body basically. And it was like, okay, this is, this is not going to be, uh, you know, Mike Tyson looked great. Roy Jones Jr. looked like someone had 
got him away from the buffet line and said, all right, Roy, we need you to fight. Um, <laughs> so I wasn't dropping the money, but if it was a real fight, Don, if it was a real fight, I probably could be convinced to put down the money to watch a pay-per-view. That's, and I haven't done that in years, but I, that's how compelling I think it would be. I really do. And I think a lot of people would do it. It's the, it's the train wreck you want to watch, right? It's the train wreck you want to watch, except the difference here, as I say, I'm not convinced it's a train wreck. I'm not convinced Tyson, I'm not convinced he loses and even if he does, I'm not convinced he gets wiped out and there is a real chance that he could win. And holy cow, if you had Mike Tyson in a real fight and he won, I mean, who knows how many years he's got before he can't do it or loses interest again. But for, if you could keep his interest in this thing for a year or two, my goodness, that guy could yeah. fill his bank account pretty well again. Anyway, if he, if he won, you're right. If he won that one, what are they paying him for the next one? Yeah, no kidding. I, and it'll be against someone really good in the next one. And this is a guy who, you know, he said 15 years ago when he lost to Kevin McBride, who was an absolute joke, that he had no interest in fighting anymore. You'll remember Mike Tyson quit in that fight. He didn't even come out of the out of his corner. He was done. And now he's interested in it again, he says. He says, see how long that lasts, but it'll be interesting. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Bring back Don Robertson into the conversation. Don is here every Monday evening from seven till eight. Don, this is a tricky one. Um, I don't know if you saw this. Just before Mike Tyson got into the ring on Saturday, there was a football game in um, Missouri and Vanderbilt's football team brought out a fee. Now Vanderbilt's football team stinks. Uh, they're awful in U.S. college football. They're, they're awful right now. Anyway, they brought out a female kicker who made history as the first female to participate in a power five conference. So one of the big conferences, football games, division one football games. And the story gets tricky and here's why her name is Sarah Fuller and good for her, but she, she went to, they didn't get anywhere near a spot for an extra point or a field goal. They stink, but she was able to have one kickoff to start the second half. She kicked the ball off. And quite honestly, you know, and it, it wasn't a very good kickoff. She kicked it about 35 yards and it went out of bounds. And there was a ton of excitement and people saying, oh, look, this is a monumental moment for women's sports and everything else. And Don, I, I had a hard time with this because I think there have been moments along the way where you look and you say, you know what, the, the, the woman who has become the general manager of the Miami Marlins who has worked in baseball for years and has proven herself to be every bit as good and every bit as worthy of that opportunity. That to me is a great moment for women in sports, but every once in a while you get one like this and, or like even Manon Rayom that I still think was made into something that it really wasn't. And I think, and I go, is this really the moment that we point to and say the glass ceiling has been shattered when someone comes in and doesn't perform very well. I, I don't know. What, what do you think about these kind of things? Well, man, uh, Manon Raymond was exactly what she was. It was in essence, a publicity stunt by Phil Esposito to try and put the Tampa Bay lightning on the map. And <clears throat> from the, from the aspect that everybody was talking about it, that, that worked. 
Um, now, she didn't play any significant minutes in a real game. She played a period in an exhibition game. So, and she didn't embarrass herself. So that was good. But you're right. I mean, I did see the highlights of this young lady. And if they'd have given her an opportunity to kick a 35-year a 35-yard field goal, and it worked, and, and, you know, she did a good job and drove her through the uprights. That's a statement. I saw the kickoff. Um, there are probably, this is only a guess, there are probably 75% of the guys on that football team that could have done just as well, and they're not kickers. So to your point, do you put somebody in and then not give them, well, she, give her an opportunity to succeed, um, yeah, it was, it can't, it can't be considered a glorious moment for females playing in the NCAA football fraternity. It's, it's, it was unfortunate. And I, I don't, you're right. You talk about the glass ceiling. I don't think it got hit there. And it's, it's too bad because I think a lot of people had good intentions with it. You know, I watched a football game yesterday. I think it might have been the Bills game. can't remember. might have been. And they had a female official in that game. And the highest compliment you can pay is that at no point, other than her ponytail, at no point did I notice her. And I compliment her because you're, you've been an official in hockey. That's the highest compliment you can pay an official that you weren't noticed because it meant you didn't do anything wrong. You did a great job. And I only noticed that there was a female official, as I say, because I saw her ponytail but she did a magnificent job. That to me is one of those moments when you applaud and you say, yes, you know what? That's, that's where you've shown that you absolutely belong there. And maybe Sarah Fuller on another day, if she wasn't as nervous, would have kicked the ball 60 yards down the field. And we would have said that was terrific, but I, it was the response to it that I found to be puzzling that it's almost as if because she was on the field, you must say that she was magnificent or somehow you are sexist and she wasn't magnificent. And that's just the reality. And I think it, it, it belittles the people who truly do a great job and who truly break through those ceilings when you make up something about how well someone did when they didn't. And I don't want to be insulting her. It's just, Someone is going to come along at some point, Don, I am convinced of it. A, a woman is going to come along at some point and be a Division One kicker, maybe be an NFL kicker. That's very possible. And when that happens and they can and they show they can do it, I would say, yes, I, I applaud that wholeheartedly. It's the it's the the almost faux celebration for in my mind for something that didn't warrant it that kind of makes me scratch my head. In essence, what should be celebrated perhaps is that she was the first and that's okay. There are all your, I, I agree with you hundred percent that there, there, there may well be a kicker that's going to play in the NFL, uh, play NCAA. There are some tremendous soccer, soccer players in the NCAA um, on scholarships, you know, that, that can kick a soccer ball, 50 yards. I'm sure they can kick a football that far. So you're right. What should be celebrated perhaps is the fact that she did it. I, I'm sure that wasn't her best kick. And I'm nope. sure she was nervous beyond belief, 
back to my point, had they had they been close enough to give her an opportunity to kick a 35 yard 35 yard field goal and she went in and nailed it, that would have been pretty cool. I think I Vanderbilt I think Vanderbilt owes her the right to play the rest of this year. Even if their kicker comes back, if they if they truly believed from what they'd seen before that she had the capability to do better than that, they can't leave that as the image of what she did on the field. They have to say, you're coming back for the next game until we get a chance for a field goal and to show what you can do so you get rid of your nerves. Because right now, as I say, based on that alone, people who are talking about how this is a shining moment for women's sports, I think are overplaying their hand. I think she could be. She could have that. She could have that potential and given an opportunity to do it again if they've seen something there. I think they owe her now that opportunity to do it. Or, as you said, it was just a publicity stunt because their team is so bad. Let's do something to draw some attention to make people feel good. Yeah, maybe they're trying to give away the squirrel and say, hey, look over there, right? You forget about the fact that we're 0-75. Um, now, you said, and you have the luxury of having done the history on this, um, that they let her have one kickoff. Well, that's all they. The that's the all game? they had. That's all they had in the game. Really? Yeah. So they, they kicked off in the in the second half, and that was it. That was it. They had no field goals, no extra points. Well, you know, so that was the only one. Played, she shouldn't even have played for a team that bad. She should have picked a better team. Yeah. Sounds like they're brutal. <laughs> right. No, they, they, well, <laughs> look, they are. Oh they are, and Holy and my crap. my thought yeah. was the and you know we were just talking in the last segment about Tyson in that discussion about Mike Tyson. We were talking about that intergender match that was once upon a once upon a time bandied about in mixed martial arts. What if her kick had gone down and been returned and she became the safety who had to make a tackle and some guy blasted her as he was running by or a blocker came and just obliterated her. This is where these things are complicated. And I would hope, I would hope that if that happened, that people would say, as long as the hit was fair, that's what had to happen because that she was a player on the field. I would hope that's what would have happened. And I trust that it would have. I hope that what would have happened was not that some people would have then said that guy should not have done that. And you almost have to have a moment like that until you can fully talk about the glass ceiling, I guess, being shattered, not to, not to wipe out, I'm not talking about wiping out a woman, but that, that the, the game is played fully and normally as you would. As I said, I use the example of the, the, the woman who's become the general manager of the Miami Marlins baseball team. And I full think marks. that what full marks, hundred percent. And you know what, yep. if she makes a trade and it's a great trade or a draft pick and it's a great draft pick, great. But until she does that and Every general manager who's ever managed, and you've been a general manager, every manager who's ever managed has made a bad trade or a bad draft pick. Everyone, unless you're doing it for five minutes. What's going to happen is, what's the reaction going to be the first time that that bad draft pick or bad trade happens? That men have done for years and years and years. Are we, are people going to be critical in the same way, which I think would be very healthy, or are they going to pull their punches and say, well, you can't really criticize? 
And if we're going, if we want this to become a normal thing, and we do, it has to be dealt with the same both ways. And so yeah. I go back to the football field. If the guy is running back and she gets wiped out in a weird way, that would almost be a really good thing. Not because I want her to be flattened or hurt or anything like that, but just because that would say, you know what? You are part of the team, not woman, not man, not she, not him, not you are part of the team, part of the game. You've done what every other player before you has done. I think that would be healthy. That'd be good. Well, they, they would, they would be then treating her as an equal. Right. Right. And, and, and what wouldn't do anybody any good if the opposing team is up 38, nothing, because that sounds like that's a regular thing with Vanderbilt. Uh, if they're up 38, nothing, and the guy goes out and decides not to block her. And, uh, and she tackles them or the touchdown is scored. The truth is you're right. Then it looks bad. Like if you have, I mean, you don't have to obliterate, uh, you have to wipe her out, but you have to treat her the same. And if you didn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have the recognition it should, but you're right. If they did just played it normal, then that'd be wonderful. Or obliterate. One of the, <laughs> there, that's better. Listen, what this, uh, this gender thing, uh, Bobby Riggs set that stuff back 50 years when he played Billy Jean King. Uh, well, uh, I'm not sure what you mean on that. I, 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 that thing was Billy Jean King, that, that Billy Jean King battle of the sexes thing has been held up as a monumental moment. I'm sorry. It, it, Bobby Riggs was about 60 years old playing the world's number one female player. It, I, I get why it was a big deal. I do. Um, it, 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 these things are tricky. They are really tricky because you don't want to be critical. I, this is why I say, I, I really believe that Vanderbilt owes this player, owes this player, Sarah Fuller, the opportunity to be on the team for the rest of the year, to have an opportunity to show that that was not what she's capable of and that that's not the lingering image we have and that this was not a publicity stunt. I, I do. I think they I owe her that now. I, and I, I hope they will. 100%. Even if it's only kicking this, well, they're, apparently they're challenged. I was going to say, even if it's only kicking a single point after a touchdown. Now that, that might be pie in the sky based on the fact that Shoney had one opportunity to kick and that was, and you got to kick off either the opening, opening, uh, the opening of the game or the second half. If that's all they had a chance, there may not be another kicking opportunity for a field goal or a single point the rest of the year. Somewhere along nice the way, gave it to her. yeah. Somewhere along the way, there's going to be well, there's going to be at least another kickoff. And if maybe you're a little less nervous, you can show what you can do. Because I saw her in a soccer highlight, and she can kick the ball. But uh, there will probably be a field goal somewhere along. Do something to allow her to prove if you're going to celebrate this as the breakthrough and I'm fine with you celebrating it as the breakthrough provided that the breakthrough is there. And I just think that the opportunity wasn't there. The performance wasn't there. A little much was made of this, but I would like to see her get that opportunity to really do it. So we can say, yep, you know what? Great. There you go. Now the door is open. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. The report from late last week about the Rogers Center in Toronto possibly being knocked down in the Blue Jays and Rogers building a new stadium. I just got one question for you, and I was on with Scott Thompson earlier today and we were talking about this. How is it that a building that is just over 30 years old can possibly 
need to be demolished and done over? What, what, we have buildings, we have examples from the ancient world of the pyramids that are still standing. I know they're not looking exactly like they were once upon a time, and I know it's different. I get it. But how is it that we seem to build junk? How is a stadium done in 35 years? Well, they, economics, right? It's all about the money. First of all, somewhat sarcastically, I will suggest to you that the government built it. True. So it, uh, it was very unique. It was the talking point of the sports world because it had a retractable roof. Perhaps the layout of the building dictated that the building had to be that size, although an engineer would correct me. But the truth is, I anything that was built in my lifetime shouldn't be torn down. Pardon me, torn down, and uh, it makes no sense. But it's all economics. Yeah, I, I, I know, the, I know. The aren't good. I mean, I mean, I mean, it's it's too far. When you start walking up, and you and I've done it, and as many people listening have. When you start walking up from where the dugout is up, it should be steeper so people are closer and they want to be more quaint now. I get all of that. I get all of that. But Don, you know what? We live in a society now in a time when if your washing machine breaks, it's disposable. You get rid of it. If your TV breaks, you don't repair it. You get rid of it. Like, and I, I understand it's a different world and I'm not lobbying for the days of, you know, whatever. But my goodness, I didn't think that stadiums, stadia, were also going to be disposable like this, where it's just, you know what, we need to fix it, but ah, we'd rather just start over again and spend a billion dollars. I, I don't know. It just it, well, it kind of shocks me. Here's the rest of it, Scott, though. Uh, and the truth, the truth is, they it's sitting on a pretty nice piece of real estate. So Owned by the government. Currently, well, Rogers bought the Rogers bought the Sky Dome. I assume they bought the real estate underneath it. No, so no, they have a hundred year lease under that, and the federal government owns it. So you would have to come up with some sort of deal with them if you're going to do anything with condos or whatever. Well, which they will, right? So what what I'm going to say is they'll build a they'll they'll have a smaller footprint, new stadium. And the money they can make off redeveloping the condos and, and, and the commercial space that will adjoin it will likely pay for the new stadium. These guys are pretty smart. So it's probably as much arithmetic and uh, money as it is needing a new stadium. Because if, if the Blue Jays start winning again, the stadium will be full. happens every time. Don Robertson, thank you so much for joining us again today. Always glad to have you along. Thanks for the time. All right, Scott. Thanks a lot. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.